welcome to another episode of Cybersecurity One on One with Larry and Joe. Hi, good morning. Good morning, how are you? G- good, how are you? Um, well. Hey, Dwayne. Heard a lot of great things about you. But first, if if you wouldn't mind, just share a little bit about our with our audience, um, how you got into cybersecurity, Dwayne, uh, what what your story was. We'd love to learn a a lot more about you because you just celebrated 24 years in cybersecurity. And that's really why we wanted to have you on the show. It's such an amazing milestone. A lot of a lot of people on Twitter uh, you know, noted that milestone, and that's how I, uh, you know, became uh, introduced to you and everything. So, yeah, uh, let us know how you got into cybersecurity. I w- I'm from North Carolina originally. That's why I was born and raised. And I went to um, Fife University, and I graduated with a degree in sociology. And I went overseas to teach English in Thailand for a few months, and came back, and I stayed with my best friend. And he is the well, I'm sorry, he was the system admin at our college, we went to college together. He graduated the year before I did. And when I was staying with him, one of the servers got hacked. Uh, I think it was a DNS server. And I didn't know what that even meant, really. I was just learning, what was it, Red Hat 4.2, I think it was <laughs> at the time. And one of the other guys who worked there told me about it and explained to me what happened. I'm like, wait, how does someone from a foreign country hack into our computer? That, that, I don't understand that, but it, was, it fascinated me though. And I was in a phase of not knowing what I was gonna do with my life, you know, with a degree in sociology. I didn't know if I wanted to go to social work. I didn't know if I wanted to do something else because I, I grew up in a group home. And so the, the social work aspect is kind of still with me in, in many ways, especially wanting to support people who or support young folks who are in, uh, you know, rough home situations that want to, you know, find their, you know, know there's more to life beyond this current situation. And then SANS had, had just started, at, uh, the, you know, the training company. And then they had like four or five modules that were free from their GSEC training. And I went through those and, and this is the benefit of being in an education environment is my, my friends that gave me some computers to play around with and you know, type the commands, do things, learn to look at log, log analysis was the first thing I learned. And it was, and it's still the most valuable skill I would say I have and appreciate the most of anything. And I just, I cringe when I look at security programs that don't have log analysis <laughs> as part of the, 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 the curriculum. And so they let me move to look at the actual servers and keeping an eye on those and see what was going on. And I still recall Christmas of 97 and New Year's of 98, mm-hmm. <laughs> being in the computer lab, looking at the logs to see what's going on, contacting the admins and say, hey, we just saw a scan from your organization you know, to our servers, here's some things that you can do. And for the most part, we got pretty good responses from folks. I made a few mistakes, sent them to the wrong person, but those folks were pretty cool about things though. And then I went to grad school at Pfeiffer University in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I was a janitor at my, my graduate school. And that's how I paid for school. <laughs> I, had, I worked in the daytime there, took classes at night. Wow. <laughs> and um, after I graduated, just for a couple of months, I was the assistant registrar, but I also did computer work, um, you know, helped maintain the computers on campus while, while I was working there. Mm-hmm. And then I got a job at Cape Fear Community College in Wilmington, North Carolina, as a Unix technical specialist. And that was my first real, you know, I would say full-time experience of job in cybersecurity at that point. You know, it's really interesting about that. Larry loves Linux. Um, so he went to a cybersecurity boot camp and he got exposed to Linux. And he's like, Joe, I love Linux. I know I'm, so, I'm, I'm supposed to like Windows because that's what corporate America is running on. But I really like this Linux stuff. And so it's kind of funny that your first position was actually a, in Unix, which yeah. is the father of Linux, right? right. So right. That, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, 
so one of the things we wanted to talk to you about, I saw that, you know, one of the things that you wrote was something to kind of automate your students connecting to the kind of um, WireGuard uh, server, because uh, you were spending a lot of time, you know, kind of helping students get connected. You're like, hey, I just want to write a script to automate that. And it really kind of raised the question of, hey, what is WireGuard? What is uh uh, what is a VPN and, and why is that necessary for internet privacy? So someone like, you know, Larry, you know, he he was not like no one teaches you things like about internet privacy in college, right? It's just not a topic they typically get into. And uh, a lot of people, I think, just take for granted. I just launched my browser and it's got SSL. So my ISP couldn't possibly be spying on me. But a lot of people don't realize that your DNS queries, they are seen by your internet service provider and your ISP, thanks to a law passed a few years ago, is now able to sell your DNS traffic to advertisers. So basically your ISP is bundling up all your traffic. They're selling it now. And so we, we certainly have some new innovations like DNS over HTTPS that's now built into browsers, and, and but it's not on by default. Um, but we also have things like the Tor browser and we have things like, uh, you know, NordVPN clients. But WireGuard is kind of next level stuff because instead of trusting, you know, uh, like NordVPN or commercial VPN providers, which, you know, uh, they may claim they're not keeping logs, but maybe they do, or maybe under a subpoena, maybe they have to and all that kind of stuff. Tell us a little about, about WireGuard and tell us a little bit about, uh, well, I have a lot of follow-up questions, but first tell our audience, what is WireGuard? And if you could just give Larry a little bit of background on on why you chose WireGuard and, and why you like it. Yeah, WireGuard is a, a newer, newer VPN that um, was designed for simplicity. A lot of VPNs do a lot of stuff. It's a, it's a router, it's a proxy, it's a, it's a single sign-on. It, it has all kinds of bells and whistles and APIs to plug into authentication systems and things of that nature. And WireGuard was, de was designed to do one thing and that's just to route traffic securely. And that's all it does. And it's only, I forgot how many thousands of lines of code is, but it's, it's really scaled down. And one of the reasons why Linus Torvalds decided to integrate it into the Linux kernel is because of its simplicity and its design. And, and, and one of the other features I liked about it is that it only uses a few algorithms. There's no, there's not a configuration you need to do on what algorithms to choose. It chooses the ones for you that was worked, were stood the test of time. And um, Justin Troutman, the cryptographer, but they have this concept of green cryptography. And that is taking the complexity out of so many algorithms and things like Wi-Fi networks. You get a home Wi-Fi network, you get a choice of WPA, WPA2, WPA2 Enterprise. Most people don't know what that means. <laughs> just, no. just create home routers with WPA2, period. Right. <laughs> it's on by default. Um, and so I chose WireGuard for those reasons. It was, it was simple, but also okay. incredibly fast as far as the communication. And it's very silent in the background, whether Windows, whether Linux, you have it running and you don't even know it's running. There's no, there's, there's no, there's no performance issues either. Got it. And wow. the model I developed of, of or let me, let me rephrase that. The model I used to borrow it from was that of zero tier. And if you're not familiar with zero tier created by Adam Irminko, Absolutely brilliant guy. Let me just tell you, <laughs> that is one brilliant guy. And Zero Tier is really manifested in his, in his brilliance. Um, I like how with Zero Tier, you downloaded the client. And, and Zero, Zero Tier is, um, it's like a VPN. It's encrypted communication between hosts, but it's point-to-point -point communication. There's no central server unless it can't route directly to the host you're trying to connect to. Um, you download the client, you install it, you join the network, you're on the network. That's it. There's no other configurations to be done. You get the IP address and you just start routing traffic. And with NoWire, I kind of wanted the same type of feature where folks can download the client, run it, and it's, and it's, and it's going. It's just going. Got it. <laughs> not a bunch of configuration, not, not a bunch of bells and whistles and things of that nature. And so because we have a lot of students who work uh, who um, log in remotely from on that campus at Champlain College, I decided to try to mimic that model, if you will. 
So I started with Linux, the download the Linux client. And one thing I want to talk about and mention, all my development on NoWire was on a Chromebook. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> nice. Using the Linux beta that it has, all my development was there. Okay. And um, so I wanted to have a client. You download it. You have a menu of options. You run connect, and you just connect. Okay. Got it. You authenticate. So the way it works right now is... Um, it uses SSH for authentication. So if you have a account on that Linux system, you log in, you put your credentials in via SSH, it downloads the configuration for you, does a test to be sure you're connected, and you start routing traffic. Like that. That's cool. So, it, so it, I, that's I the same thing with Windows. I want the same okay. thing with Windows with PowerShell. Okay. Run it, here's a menu, start it, install it, whatever, and it's done. That's really cool. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to post a link to that, uh, to your GitHub page on the uh, podcast made page so that people listening to this, they can go check that out because uh, that, cool. that's really cool. Um, yeah, it had, it had a few, it had a couple of pages that were a GUI based for the web because I, and they, I, uh, I included two-factor authentication in case folks want to use that. Nice. And it, it was a plain HTML page and then Alexandria um, follow on Twitter she came along with her development skills and created a nice interface for it. So I'm going to work on integrating that this weekend. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, one of the questions I had for you was uh, in terms of internet privacy today, um, people are oftentimes choosing WireGuard because if you go with a commercial VPN client, um, you're not really necessarily guaranteed privacy. You know, they might market it, they might say it is, but with WireGuard, you truly like your 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 egress point is truly on a machine that you control, right? And um, so you you really are able to obscure your like your home IP. Um, it, you know anything you browse is going to come from that from that uh, you know other machine wherever uh, WireGuard's installed. The the question is um, at at what point though um, do you can you really control your privacy, because if someone subpoenas that machine, right, uh, wherever that is, um, you know, they could get your your traffic to the point you may never even know if it's like some kind of a FISA court, you know, kind of kind of thing. They could then just they can basically do a port mirror on that uh, device, and they would be gathering all your traffic, and you would never know. So, can you really have? Can, I guess the question is, can you really have privacy today? In 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 um, and really trust in privacy? Is that is that a realistic thing that's possible today? I don't know. It, it, that's, that's a hard question for the simple reason that you mentioned um, in your earlier comments that the ISPs can collect your DNS um, entries. Well, with enough metadata, you can put a picture together on what the person is up to. You don't even have to see that traffic. Um, and the same thing with commercial VPN providers. You know, they tout end-to-end -end encryption. Okay, yeah, we, we, we believe that the mathematics are there. You can't break the traffic. But do you have net flows in your organization? <laughs> and if you have net flows, there are IP addresses attached to it. And they can tell, oh, Dwayne had this IP address and this is his traffic going out to all these places via our provider. Even though there's no logs on the VPN server, but there right. are the net flows. Yeah. So it, the reason why that's a hard question is because also, because I'm using a VPN, my ISP knows I'm using a VPN. And right. know, well, what's so, what's so secretive here? And also, like you mentioned, if it's Pfizer, more than likely no, because they can trace traffic to, you know, Champlain to my home network. Yeah. And then they contact my ISP. What's going on between these times? Okay, let me find out. Are Dwayne's family members home at that time? No. Okay, this is probably Dwayne doing this then. Right. Right. So so, so no, I, I would say I don't know, but I don't think it's it's very difficult to have privacy. I was reading online that some of the hackers are basically using um, two forms uh, of tunneling. They'll basically use WireGuard and then they'll use Tor on top of WireGuard so that if you actually did, um, you know, take over that machine or port mirror that machine at best, you're going to see traffic going to some other uh, Tor node. And all that really does is just lengthen the time, I think, of the investigation, right? Because then at that point, you know, let's say law enforcement takes over that machine and they see it's just poor traffic going, you know, tunneling through WireGuard now. Now they have to go to that other country and try to find those exit nodes at that point. So it, it, it 
probably delays the investigation, but it's still, I was reading this report on the FBI that um, basically, I, they, they basically found a way to kind of crack tour. Um, and it was actually using the technique that you described. It, it had to do with the exact time and millisecond of the connection of your machine. And they were able to correlate it with the Tor exit nodes. And it could have like mathematically the probability because of the TCP sequence numbers and the timing and everything, the fact that they occurred uh, roughly around the same time, they were able to basically say that, that that is that machine, even though it's, you know, leaving that other machine. So the FBI looked at it and they're like, this is a really interesting problem. We're going to take our best minds. We're going to figure out a way to sort of like show that that is that machine. So um, I think the people listening should just know this, that if you're thinking about getting into hacking, you know, on, on the black hat side of it, um, just know that if, 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 you, if you hack the wrong company, like a Colonial Pipeline or someone, yeah, the, the national intelligence apparatus, they'll be able to find you. There's <laughs> there's like there's there's probably not a secret why Dark Side all of a sudden started issuing Mia culpas and started kind of like saying, okay, we're we're done. We're not gonna hack you. You know, that was like immediately after they attacked a major uh, oil interest of the US, right? So well yeah. that's a that's a really good example you mentioned because even with encrypted traffic, you can you know, if you have enough of it and you know what site they're going to, you know what the behaviors of that site are. You can look at the traffic and see the timing of events, how much data was sent back and forth and kind of figure out, kind of guess what, what happened during that, that point in time. So yes, yeah. the IS, my ISP can, can say, oh yeah, during this time period that were X number of bytes being sent, yes, encrypt it, but, we, but you know, um, national intelligence has very, very cryptographers who can do the math and say, okay, with, the, with crypto, it's added this much to it. This exit node has this much unencrypted, so it's probably yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so can you something you, you mentioned as well? Um, I'm I'm sorry, Larry. No, I was just wondering because um, what I'm learning in, in in boot camp, you can modify the timestamps, right? For, so I'm saying that if you could if you can modify your timestamps that when when you were on and which side and which side does that just make the forensics a little bit harder for like an investigator to find? It, it 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 makes it harder from the host side, but I'm I'm not sure about the network side though. Oh, okay. But you have to modify the timestamps through every host that you're hopping through. Really? You know, for that to be, um, yeah. you know, tr truly hiding. But but something you mentioned it, and that unless something's changed with Tor, that I don't I don't realize Tor doesn't hide your DNS traffic, and so that's probably why they're using WireGuard because WireGuard will tunnel your DNS traffic to the remote end so that yeah that your isp can't see that traffic yeah yeah great point <clears throat> so uh a, another thing i wanted to discuss was um the the log analysis aspect so this is close to your heart uh you know lo log analysis um larry's very interested in getting uh his first kind of entry-level position in cybersecurity, right as a SOC analyst mm -hmm. um what resources would you recommend for an entry-level you know position uh to i know there's a lot of courses out there on like udemy and different kind of things um and log analysis is critical for a SOC analyst right i mean it's it's, it's oh, really yes. really important yeah, um absolutely. what what do you tell your students um or what do you recommend or do you, if you i don't know if you have any um available courses online that larry would be able to to go and check out for for learning about log analysis and becoming an expert there? Well, it's, it's a great question because on Wednesday, I gave a workshop at GrimCon on um, the, the topic was the cognitive science approach to teaching cybersecurity. And I used log analysis as an example of that. So it's like a, a two hour presentation and it kind of walks through how we should be teaching um, cybersecurity education based on how people learn. Ooh. And then about 30 minutes after to get to those basics, I get into log analysis, okay. how to interpret a syslog, and then about 20 minutes on using those same principles to teach web log analysis, and then how to correlate events as well. Here's your syslog messages with this person doing this. Um, this is, this is what, you, what you should do. You got the event. Let's see what happened before, what led up to that, this major um, uh, log being generated. And then let's okay. see what happened after that. You get an IP address. Okay, let's look at other logs now. 
as much as I hate to say it, but I don't know of a whole lot of courses on log analysis. You know, if you, it's, it's, it's Dwayne, really if, if you, if you create one on Udemy, uh, we'll, yeah. we'll put a link on this site uh, for sure to, uh, to publish that. You can get, you start to get paid by students all over the world. If you create a, a Udemy course or something like that. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, is the, is the grim, is the Grimcon talk that you did? Is that a, is that a link that we can post? Uh, yeah, or is that, I, a, is it a paid conference? Okay, cool. Afterwards. Yeah. Okay, that'd be great. Yeah, I'd like to post that in the show notes as well. Okay. Um, okay. Now, one of the one of the questions that we get asked asked a lot from from students, especially um, um, military veterans who have a GI Bill, um, should they spend that GI Bill on getting like a bachelor's or or a master's in cyber, or should they take that money and go through boot camps and get certs like CISSP and and various kind of like cybersecurity certs, really to get that first job in cyber? What what do you think is the best use of money? Well, first, um, the CISSP requires five years of experience before you can sit for that exam, and if they're new, then I would suggest um, a couple of routes. One is um, start with Security Plus. Because for one, in the government sector, Security Plus is like the gold standard for, okay. for an intro level. I will supplement Security Plus with TriHackney. Okay. TriHackney platform is really the really one I, I highly recommend because you get hands-on experience. They have different mm. paths you can take. There's a complete beginner's path. And uh, after, what, six months or a year or something like that, if you consistently log in, you consistently, um, you know, engage, you get vouchers for like Security Plus <laughs> and voucher for OSCP. So mm. you don't have to, you won't have to pay for the exam. And the best part about it is that it really prepares you because you get hands-on learning via your web browser. So you don't have to download anything. You can just go to the, you can have a Chromebook. Ah. Go, to, go to the web and each room you walk through, you're actually typing in commands and doing those things. So, and you get oh, exposed yeah. to the different roles and cybersecurity. So you can say, oh, I really like this pen testing. After I'm done with this, I'm gonna take the pen testing path. Okay. And it, it exposure to Windows administration, Linux administration, networking, and then how all that comes together in cybersecurity. So I, I am a huge fan of TriHackMe. Yeah. I have a, yeah. I have a question, Dwayne, on, um, you mentioned OSCP. Um, Larry's dream is to be an ethical hacker. He would love to be a pen tester, ethical hacker. That's like eventually what he wants to get into. And there's, I was, I was kind of telling him there's kind of a path to get there. Typically, you know, you start off SOC analyst, you kind of build up and then you kind of like move into that. It's very difficult to kind of hop directly into to pen testing. Would you agree with that, that there's kind of a, a, you know, career path to kind of get to there? Or do you think it's actually possible for someone to kind of go right into pen testing? I believe someone can go right into pen testing if, if they have those basics, Windows administration, Linux administration, and networking. Okay. You have to, I think you have to know those because that's what you're targeting. Are those that's systems. what you're testing. And Got you it. Need to, you need to know how those things work under, yeah. under the hood, how those services work. So again, the reason why I like RealTriHackMe is because it exposes you to those key things you need to know to be a security professional. Got it. And when you go through the security, um, uh, TriHackMe Complete Beginner's Path, there's another certification, the EJBT, the um, e-learnings um, Jenga pen testing um, certification. And I think that training is like, what? It's, no, it's free. The, tra the training is free and you just pay for the, um, the certification. And if you fail the first time, the second time is free. Okay. Exactly. Now you mentioned OSCP. Uh, is that kind of the gold standard of, of uh, ethical hacking or is there any other um, preliminary search that uh, for ethical hacking that Larry might want to look into as well? Uh, EJPT, uh, EJPT is, you're starting to see that with, with some job requirements or uh, not requirements, but good to have is the EJPT. Okay. okay. And then OSCP, one of the reasons why it is kind of a gold standard, there's been some discussion because they're, you know, they don't like when people, they've trademarked offensive security, first of all. <laughs> and they don't, they, they don't like when people try to that trademark. So if you look past that, they are the gold standard because one, um, you learn a lot about pen testing. The, the certification is 24 hours to, you know, hack your way through to the target and you have to write a report. And what I see a lot of people failing is writing the report. Got it. The report writing. Yes. Um, now, but, just but, so but people that, know, this a, is but that's, yeah, a, that's one important aspect about that. Sure. The reason why I, I, I would say 
take a different route is because I don't like their method of teaching. Mm. They give you a PDF document, they give you a support channel, and they don't really provide much guidance except mm. try harder or you're almost there. Or if they really see you've exhausted all of your possible uh, resources, then they'll give it, give you some guidance. So if if you don't learn well, really well on your own, mm. it's probably not the one you want to jump right into. You want to have some experience. Like the EJPT, EJPT would be a good stepping off point for that. Okay. Uh, that, that model of learning is just incredibly difficult and time consuming for people. So, and just to give people some context, um, correct me if I'm wrong, OSCP, uh, offensive security, these are the people behind Cali Linux, correct? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So uh, that's one of the first things Larry and I did when we built a lab at his house is uh, I, uh, I put Kali Linux on a station nice. and then I, and then I gave him a, a window station to hack. Yep. And uh, so, so, uh, so Larry, the OSCP certification is actually associated with Kali uh, Linux. Yeah. Oh, sweet. Yeah. That's awesome. And actually on their, their website, they have a, they have a, a mini course, if you will, on how to use OSCP with the, uh, it's that vulnerable distribution. <laughs> I just lost the name of it, but it's up to like version three now where you just learn how to use like Metasploit and various tools and things of that nature. Yeah. Awesome. So, so Dwayne, um, there's this, this really tough problem in cybersecurity today, which is this whole uh, supply chain issue, right? Because uh, um, our machines are all running software that we trust. Um, you have a, you know, a ThinkPad driver from Synaptics that, that gets auto-updated by Lenovo. You've got, um, you know, various software that's calling home to get updated. As soon as those companies get hacked, right, it's inevitable. It's going to happen at some point when they get hacked, not if. Um, the attacker can basically, you know, plant code. It's going to run on your machine. And... You may not actually know for months. People didn't know that Solar Winds was compromised for months and months and months. Um, you know what? You know what can we really do about this problem of of uh, you know these vendors that we trust that are running these auto update things on our on our endpoints? Yeah. You know, I, I want to just say I, I don't I don't subscribe to the win but if because it's, it just sounds so fatalistic. Like there's like there's nothing you can do. There's a lot that can be done to really mitigate a lot of attacks from happening. It's, you know, because, I mean, that statement does have some merit because someone on the inside could also could definitely be malicious. So, but mm -hmm. I, I, sure. I, I try to, I try to stay away from that. Okay. So, so folks know that the work that they can put into it, there are ways to mitigate a lot of things. Understood. Um, the supply chain attack is hard and the solar winds is like the worst case scenario when you have a vendor whose software is in so many organizations throughout the world and someone, a group was able to update their code, inject their malicious code and gain access to all of these organizations. And there are some best practices that could have been put in place to help mitigate that issue. But um, it's, it's a, it's, it, that kind of showed how hard that problem is, but also shows that what we need to do is not 100% trust all of our updates, which is why when we apply updates, we need to monitor our systems to see if there's anything strange going on. But it, it requires training to do those kind of things and know what to look for. If your SolarWinds, for example, is you know talking to the internet on a routine basis, to me that's suspicious. And for one thing, my network monitoring server, I'm going to block it from accidentally actually trying to get out to the internet, and I'm going to log it. If there's any queries coming from my machines to the being logged, I'm going to investigate that pretty quickly. So let me challenge you on this a little bit. Yeah. Um, there's fatigue that sits in, you know, you update every month, right? Or, you know, Chrome updater, you know, Google, Google could get hacked. I mean, who knows, right? So, so Chrome gets updated. Firefox. So there's fatigue that sits in because you might have 30, 40 different kind of programs that are updating, you know, periodically yep. and you have a day job, you've got family, you've got friends, you've got hobbies and stuff like that. So for, yep. is it really practical to be doing log analysis on uh, behavioral changes on uh, all these updates that are happening? I mean, isn't there like a realistic fatigue that kind of sets in on, on looking at uh, behavioral anomalies? Because in order to know that it's a behavioral anomaly, you have to know what the baseline is, right? And how do you really baseline 
uh, normal traffic, especially this gets back to log analysis. When you see something happen in a log, the only way for you to know if it's bad is what is the pattern, what is normal? Um, you have to then go back in the log and go, okay, here's normal, and I, now I see a behavioral anomaly. So how do you really do that at scale uh, when you have dozens of applications auto-updating all the time? Um, you know, is it, I don't know if you have the answer to this, but it seems like a very difficult problem to solve. Right. No, I don't have the answers to it. And, and, and one thing you stated is, is critical, log fatigue. You can't look at everything. And so that comes from training and knowing what to look for and what should we be um, um, filtering. But what you're filtering could also be something that's actually going on that's malicious as well. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's a hard problem, and I, I don't have a really good answer for it. Um, yeah. it it's one that when you have controls that are um, defense in depth, you're also depending on the community. Um, and if you have a good network of, of people who are posting anomalies and detecting these things, then you, you have a, a, a better chance of, of managing or, or, or um, what I would say, you have a better chance of capturing those things before things get way out of hand. Yeah. But when, when, when things occur and in the, in the government side, in the intelligence side, they may sit on it for a long time before you ever hear about it in the public. Yeah, because the the beaconing traffic, right, um, is is so uh, disguised. It's very difficult to detect. Especially, let's Incredibly talk about difficult. let's talk yeah. about co cobalt strike. Cobalt yeah. strike um, has beacons that will that will communicate with um, content delivery networks, CDNs, yeah. uh, such as Amazon.com, yeah. uh, such as you know Google. And so, when you're looking at pure network traffic. And all you do from a NetFlow perspective is you see a source IP and you see amazon.com or google.com. Um, there's no way to really know, is right. that a normal traffic or is that a cobalt strike beacon, right? right. Because they're able to, the beacons are able to hide. So at this point, network analysis in and of itself, void of a correlation with host forensics, right. cannot actually determine that a machine has not been compromised. You actually have to, in my opinion, you, we need a solution that could actually correlate host forensics with network forensics to, in order to identify that cobalt strike beacon kind of traffic. It's an incredibly difficult problem. I think this is probably uh, associated with why we're seeing such a rise in compromised networks today, because uh, people are not using authenticated uh, web proxies. You know, for example, outbound network traffic is not getting authenticated. Basically, it's too much of a burden for users to have to authenticate every time an executable needs to reach the internet. That could be part of the solution, you know, right, is preventing these like, you know, uh, just random executables from just being able to, to talk to the internet. You know, um, authenticating web proxies uh, have typically been difficult for corporate networks to deploy because of how disruptive and impactful they are. But uh, anyway, interesting no, thing. No, but um, if, yeah, if, go ahead. If you, if you go back to what we are just talking about with those fundamental security, security con controls, if you start with those from the very beginning, if you start with those from scratch, you, you minimize the chances of that, that piece of malware even being able to execute in your organization. So for example, web browsers, email clients, if you look at a lot of these nation state and a lot of these attacks, they're coming in through those phishing, uh, spear phishing type things and also malicious attachments. Yes, you can have um, antivirus and things of that nature and anti-malware solutions, but the, but the, those can be bypassed if it's like something new that has no signatures for. But something you can do on a local system is one, enable application control. So nothing can execute unless it's on this allowed list. More, and here's a, a really good example of how developers need to, you know, uh, incorporate secure coding. Oh, I just lost it. One of the most recent, oh, oh the, the Kaseya, uh, mm -hmm. if I said that right. Um, compromise. Mm -hmm. It was documented and publicly known what directories not to allow application control. Oh, on, yes, yes. Which means as an attacker, okay, I'm going to execute this and copy into that directory if it exists. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but what about sandboxing? Let's just sandbox web browsers and email clients. So yes. there's a limited and restricted environment it can even execute in. You know, I'm glad matter. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, web browser sandboxing is is available. Um, specifically, it's actually built into the Windows operating system. It's called uh, Application Guard, so that the Microsoft Edge web browser can run in a virtualized container, and the user doesn't really um, is not really affected. Their experience is not affected. So if you go to a malicious website. 
where you click on a phishing link that goes to a malicious website, it's all containerized in the web experience, but it's not on by default and it does require, um, you know, the CPU and everything to be enabled, the, the, the bit, you know, the BIOS has to be enabled for virtualization. So there's some definitely some dependencies. Um, obviously, that's not going to work on Chromebooks and things. It's Windows specific. It's not going to work for Mac or Linux. So on a, on a Windows machine, uh, we do have Application Guard. There's other uh, solutions. Well, well, uh, and, yeah, and, and that's also assuming that organizations are all going to use Microsoft Edge for one thing. And, yeah, there, but, there is an extension well, you, for Chrome. Have, like if you, if you use Google Chrome, there is an application guard extension. So yes. you can run uh, virtualized, but, but but basically just to build on your point there, virtualized web browsing is one way to kind of, you know, try to help uh, the problem. Um, or, or, or application yeah. control, because again, that's built into Windows and it can be centralized as well, centralized management right. of that as well. So let's talk about this, drill into that a little bit. If I'm running application control, it's basically saying I trust signed executables. So the executables have to be signed, have digitally to be signed. signed. It, it can just be by name, path, or directory. Right, well. name, path, or directory. And so if I follow Kaseya's you know, uh, instruction guides, I have to allow anything in this kind of directory. Uh, and then, so that's kind of the, the weakness or vulnerability. If people are following uh, manufacturer sort of instructions and they're told, okay, in order for us to support you running this on our system, you have to like allow or whitelist this directory. Once hackers kind of figure out you know, where those directories are, they can kind of hide their malware. So, uh, but to your point, I think earlier, defense in depth, multiple layers, we can kind of slow them down. I really appreciate your optimism that it's not necessarily a fatalistic thing to, to you know, just kind of throw our hands up and say, we're all getting hacked. You know, I, I do, I do, I do appreciate that, you know, because that, the, the significance of that is that, that it then um, allows us to not give up. It, it yes. allows us to keep trying. Um, before not, we end the show, not, yeah, not, go ahead. not to give up and keep trying, but also helping senior executives understand complexity and the complexity that exists in small to large organizations. And if we can systematically go through and redesign and rebuild, not rebuild, but redesign how we implement security starting at the host level, IDSs, um, proxies, they're great, but really so much stuff is, is bypassing that because everything's SSL almost. <laughs> Yeah, that's why we need those controls at the host level. Before before we wrap up, there's two last topics I want to pick your brain on. Um, I want to really get into uh, one of the passion areas uh, that you have. I want our audience to know uh, all the great work you're doing fighting human trafficking. Uh, some of the books you've written, I, I'd love for you to plug some of those books and 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 really just give you an opportunity to kind of have a platform here because you're you're on such a noble. Uh, force and cause here that we want to amplify that we want to use this podcast to kind of amplify the amazing work you're doing but before we do i want to uh, i want to take advantage of the fact that you have uh, a degree in sociology and i want to i want to ask you a question about um one of the things that i i believe that we're experiencing with ransomware is we have societies around the world that are targeting america uh specifically because of the wealth uh, they know that America is very, you know, there's a lot of money there. People can pay the ransom, but there's also, there's not a fear of retribution. There's not a fear of punishment. There's no deterrent effect because there's no extradition treaties. There's no fear that they're going to actually be punished for this crime. And I feel like they, they can almost rationalize it as America being the great devil and uh, that's going to attack these people. So there's, there's some, definitely some, some things that are happening that are causing, I think, this rise in ransomware attack from around the world, specifically targeting America primarily. If you look at the studies, it's like 70% of ransomware specifically, you know, targeting American-based interests and companies, right? Um, but with your background and your degree and everything, would you, uh, would you attribute um, some of the rise being the fact that there's, there's no threat of punishment with, you know, maybe a moralistic or, you know, these other motivations yeah. that are driving ideological, not just financial? Um, oh, absolutely. Um, because, you know, uh, one, one of the biggest, I, I guess one of the primary um, reasons for or, um, compromises or attacking is, is opportunistic. <clears throat> and when you look at a country that has things like insurance, <laughs> where they know that this provider is going to pay, um, absolutely, they're going to start targeting those organizations in, in, in that country for sure. And I would say that if other countries also start having these big insurance premiums to pay out things, they're going to be targeted just as well. So just they're basically just going to follow the money, if you will. And um, 
I don't know if I should mention my my novels because I want to go back to <laughs> and rewrite those. I looked at them, I pulled my book down, looked at them, like, oh my gosh, that's 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 a terribly written sentence, you know. Oh, that's so, uh, well. But, uh, it, I, I just want to I just want to really thank you for all your work there. Um, you know, well, it, it's I'm significant. Kind of, kind of you're, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of more into um, augmented reality, and we have a program we're working on where we are writing an augmented reality program to help people learn, uh, well, there's an organization called Vermont Works for Women. And they are an organization that introduces women and non-binary uh, people to careers that would normally be off limits to them. And one is construction. And in the summertime they have, a, well, throughout the year they have this construction program and um, folks can go there, learn it. And not, they don't have to pay anything. They get transportation, um, uh, uh, reimbursements, um, childcare, you know, reimbursement, things like that. And there were two tools that really intimidate people, the MIG welder and the uh, miter saw. And so what we're working on are some augmented reality experiences to help people learn how to use those so they're not so intimidating uh, when they actually go to the machines themselves. And that's been extended to potentially moving this into the Vermont Corrections, uh, Women's Correction Center so that while they're incarcerated, they can be exposed to the construction trade so that when they get out, they have some familiarity and have been exposed to it. So, that, you know, potentially it could be a, a, a tool that can be expanded on to train people in using construction tools and use the augmented reality. And so we're working with um, that program, that uh, organization right now to try to, to try to use a technology for social good. <laughs> it's really amazing. Um, you know, there's there's so much good that you're doing, Dwayne, and you have done. You know, I I, uh, I was so impressed. You know, reading your background, that when you wrote the books, um, you know, not only are you helping people, but a hundred percent of you know the royalties and money you actually donate to support organizations that support victims of human trafficking. And um, you know, you, you really speak out. You're, you're really out there doing good for the for the whole community and everything. So we just want to thank you for everything you're doing there. And um, uh, for people that are really interested in uh, learning more about you and everything, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, paste any kind of links that you'd like us to, to post, um, okay. you know, here on, on, on there. Um, is there any, any uh, last minute kind of platform that you'd like to, to use this for, for people that are listening? Um, we'll just kind of leave that open-ended for you. Uh, I did a TEDx talk and wanting to, my, my doctorate degree is, is in um, uh, education and I'm starting my dissertation now and my research is in the fall. And my TEDx talk was about how we can help to change our education system to make it more of a community-based learning um, system. And part of that was, was getting our middle school and high school students to become certs for their local community. So they take what they're learning in school and apply that to the real world while they're teenagers. And I build a case for that in that TEDx talk. And it's something I really want to amplify. It's something I, I want, once I'm done with my dissertation, get my degree, I want to focus on this quite a bit more um, because there is a lot, there's a lot of teenagers and middle age, tweens and teens out there and that we already trust in jobs that you're like, oh, teenagers are doing that. A 15 year old can be a lifeguard. 15-year-old lifeguard, security practitioner. <laughs> We're talking about lives for one thing, you know, directly on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I really want to see our education system changed. Um, and one is standardized testing. Keep the common core, keep the outcomes, get rid of the, of the standardized testing and use tools to help track progress over a period of the year learning attendance behavior. And then you can see that in real time. The community can see in real time if the school is, is um, doing anything to help kids because you have metrics. The principals can step in. Financial resources that are being sent all over the place can be honed in on schools that actually need it. And the resources can be used, that money for standardized testing can be used to bring in resources to the school to help students who are struggling because students bring in a lot of background and personal issues that impact their learning. So the burden of how well 
the school teachers and principal are doing should not be put on put on teacher uh, students back because of a standardized test mm. so yeah excellent excellent well uh and, and Larry, I want to give you a chance. Do you have any um, any other questions for Dwayne before uh, we wrap up? Yeah, so I do have uh, one question I was thinking about. I know that you've been um, you celebrating your 24th year in uh, cybersecurity. What is your driving motivation that keeps you wanting to learn more and not just staying at one level in cybersecurity? Because I know it's a it's a changing field. Uh, monthly or weekly or yearly what is your driving motivation my driving motivation was like two weeks ago i got my my air attack cyber intel um, certification and my driving motivation geez i guess i never thought about that <laughs> oh, what i liked about the industry is that one, I was always learning. I like that. And two, it, it is exciting when you have a win. <laughs> it's exciting when you have, uh, uh, when an organization has been compromised and you go in and you can help them get to a level where you can minimize the chances of that. And I like the education part of it. When I went from Cape Fear College to the government, um, that's where I, I spent a lot of time helping other organizations within um, NOAA, where I worked, helping them to implement good security uh, practices and being able to hear from them how they're able to now have insight into their network. So if anything that keeps me going is the, is the, the, the learning that goes on and the sharing of knowledge that occurs as well. And, it, and the excitement of the field because you never know, you don't know what's gonna happen next. I worked instant response for six years and I did not go into work with any expectations. <laughs> whatever showed up, whatever happened, it happened and you have to be ready for it. So I liked, I liked the learning aspects of it and how you use so much of what you know, plus some when it comes to instant response, for example. Um, what keeps me going now what keeps me going now is the is is the teaching and the teaching of, of new people into the industry and helping them become security professionals not just not just practitioners we want to teach students to think about security and not just be worker bees if you will so how does this how does my job with my job what is the impact if something happens here? Not just to the organization, but to the individuals in the organization and the individuals who's impacted by the data. And in one class I teach information assurance, that's how we look at information from a, from a perspective, of, okay, you hear about data breaches, but let's see what happens to an individual person when there's a data breach. Let's look at this lawsuit and see what was the impact to them because of a security lapse, for example. And, and that's how, that's what keeps me going is to keep getting folks to think big about security and not just how to hack. That's, uh, that's awesome. Sorry, um, that was a long response. No, no, that was really good. You know, that was a, um, it's a hard question. Though. No, that was a really good, really good question. And, and Larry, are you, are you asking Larry, because you're, you're wondering about uh, your own motivation or do you want to share about your motivation? Uh, Yes and no, because, you know, you wonder, you know, you got a lot, I'm, I'm actually, I'm changing fields. So I'm changing from managing warehouses, and coaching football and, and, um, and then basketball and things like that to actually getting into cybersecurity that I'm very, very passionate about. So I also wonder that um, someone like you and Joe that's been in the field for 20 plus years, you know, you, you see a lot of people at some jobs that just get burnt out. but um, from what, from what I'm learning at the, the beginning stages of uh, just about IT and uh, cybersecurity, it's a changing field yearly. And you, you're, you're always updating your knowledge uh, and, and you're always learning. So that's something that really intrigued me about the field. You, you so know, I was, just, I was wondering about. The transition from a different field is, is, is really cool, by the way. <laughs> I, I see a lot of folks on Twitter who are coming from like um, there's a young lady right now who um, is, she, she was a social worker and she's now going into cybersecurity, which is really cool. Um, 
and I, I like that you that you um, the experience that you have as a manager and understanding how businesses work, understanding processes, all of that's going to come in come in um, come into play. Um, being a coach of young people, you learn you know how to communicate with people, you know how to encourage people. All of that's going to come into play with your with your um, your career in cybersecurity. And, and, I, and I like that you didn't mention money and I don't mention money. Yes, there's a lot of money to be made, but it, it's, it's, it's something about the work that we do and I do that keeps me going. Because if I want to make a lot of money, I wouldn't be teaching, right? <laughs> <laughs> if I want to make four or $500,000, I go out, I go out into the industry to be a CIO or something like that. But it's, it's about, it's about the, the love of this field yeah. and realizing what you're doing yeah. as a cybersecurity professional who you're helping. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of the things that motivates me, I can really empathize with both what you're saying is, is I feel like hackers are bullies and I feel like they're, they're, they need to be stopped. Uh, there's a lot of people out there, uh, you know, grandparents out there that rely on their nursing home and everything. And if they get ransomed, they can't get their prescriptions. I mean, that's wrong. Yes. You know, so yes. I, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of what motivates me is, is really wanting to help people and protect them from these bullies out there. So, uh, so what yeah. you just said, that's textbook of looking at the big picture, looking at the yeah. individual who's impacted by that's the right. ransomware attack. Yes, absolutely. that's right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and something's got to be done. You know, someone's got to stand up and, and uh, we can if if we all do our own individual part, you know, hopefully it'll add up to to a larger, you know, some right. Um, but uh, really want to thank you for your time today. And, and uh, it was really a, a fantastic conversation. We'd love to have you back on the show, uh, you know, sometime oh, yeah. as well. And, and so what's next for you? So 24 years, this is actually a, pr a pretty big milestone for you. Again, congratulations on 24 years in cybersecurity. Uh, what, uh, any future plans of what, what's next? I would really like to work for a think tank or consult with a think tank. I still want to stay in academia because, you know, now I'm, I got, I'm getting my degree in education. I've changed a lot about how I teach as a result of my, my doctorate degree and learning about cognition and learning. So I really want to, I really want to do something more with that. And, and a lot of these training providers out there, I'd love to work with them to help them present material so it's easier to learn. And, and not easier to learn, but not just easier to learn, but you can transfer that knowledge from that textbook to basically in any environment you go into. So it, it sounds really strange, but I really want to get more into education of cybersecurity and work with these training providers to really help them, you know, uh, spruce up how they're presenting information to novices and to advanced people. I, I just gave a talk yesterday at Diana Initiative about how to train and mentor experts. It's very mm -hmm. different from how you, you train and mentor a novice. <laughs> And so we were just talking, Larry, about um, Twitter, the the sort of, um, you know, there's there's great parts of Twitter. And then you have because of the anonymous nature of social media, a lot of people hide behind things and they attack women on Twitter. And there was this thing that was going on, Larry, the last couple of weeks where there was a female that kind of I guess she posted a picture of herself in a bikini. Yeah. And um, there was a guy that was like, oh, my gosh, don't. I, I didn't come to Twitter for your bikini pic. I, I just want your knowledge, not not like that. And um, it made her feel bad, you know, it hurt her feelings. And so what was amazing is the entire Twitter InfoSec community really rallied around her. And um, it, there was guys posting pictures of themselves in bikinis and there was, there was all sorts of things. I mean, really everyone kind of came to her defense and I was, yeah. I was really proud of that community and, and uh, it was, it was pretty cool, but. Uh, yeah, I, um, I don't, I don't have a bikini, yeah. but I posted a photo that I, I had this um, shirt on the like a print shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I, <have> my, <laughs> I didn't my see that. I'm going to have to go back and check that out. It's pretty funny. <laughs>